Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, April 26th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Dozens of people named Josh gathered in Nebraska over the weekend for a battle to crown the ultimate Josh. Who won and why the heck did this happen? I've got the details. The precursor to laugh tracks, professional applauders at opera houses in 19th century France. And the Oscars saw many firsts last night, including one long overdue first for the award ceremony's set. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Over the weekend, the internet was aflame with posts about one of the most highly anticipated events of the last year, sharing photos and hot takes on the wardrobes people showed up in, creating brackets and predictions for who would win, remarking on the subtle diversity among the much-predicted homogeneity, and above all, waiting eagerly to see who would win. No, I am not talking about the Oscars. This weekend belonged to the Joshes. Dozens of Joshes descended upon the Air Park Green area in Lincoln, Nebraska, along with hundreds of spectators, for a battle for their lives, or at least for their name, as they wielded pool noodles in a raucous melee to determine the ultimate Josh. How did this come about? Well, last April, University of Arizona engineering student Josh Swain decided to message every other Josh Swain he could find on Facebook, an idea which stemmed from a combination of pandemic boredom and frustration that he could never snag the name Josh Swain as a username online. The message he sent to nine other Josh Swains on Facebook began, You're probably wondering why I gathered you all here today. And another Josh Swain wisely replied, because we're all named Josh. The first Josh Swain continued, quote, Precisely 424-2021, 12 p.m., meet at these coordinates. We fight. Whoever wins gets to keep the name. Everyone else has to change their name. You have a year to prepare. Good luck. End quote. The coordinates were a random field in Nebraska, despite the fact that Swain lives in Tucson. He was kidding about the fight, but screenshots of his Facebook message went semi-viral on Twitter, and as the year went on, a miserable, miserable year in desperate need of an innocent and funny distraction, people continued to share the screenshot across the internet with reminders of how long until the big Josh fight. There was even a countdown site created, Josh vs. Josh vs. Josh.com. Around three months ago, Swain realized that people were actually expecting this to happen, and that they would probably show up whether he organized something or not, so he decided to take the reins. He bought plane tickets to Nebraska, he moved the site nine minutes away from the original coordinates on someone's private property so that it was in a field that could safely accommodate a large number of people with at least a semblance of social distancing. Though both that and mask wearing didn't happen too much despite Josh's insistence and even forethought to bring extra masks to hand out to people. He got in touch with the city of Lincoln to warn them that a large amount of people were about to descend on this field for a harmless charity event, but that he couldn't give them an exact number of people because at that point it had gotten so far out of his hands he genuinely wasn't sure what to expect. And yes, despite all of the fight and battle language, it really was a harmless charity event. Swain was adamant that there be no physical violence. Instead, he told everyone to bring a pool noodle, and they'd just have a big pool noodle sword fight. 
And as for the charity side of things, once it started looking like something was actually going to happen, he started a fundraising page called Support Legal Fees to Help Josh Swain's Change Their Names. A riff on his original message that the fight would be for the ultimate Josh Swain and that all of the losers would have to change their names. But if you scrolled down to the description on the fundraising page, you saw that no money would actually be going to any Josh Swains. The money was for the Children's Hospital and Medical Center Foundation in Nebraska. And he additionally set up a drive on-site for Josh's and spectators to donate non-perishable food items to the Lincoln Food Bank. The event evolved into a battle of the Joshes in general, or hashtag Josh fight, not just a fight among the Josh Swains. In fact, while about 50 Joshes showed up, many clad in superhero, Star Wars, or Viking-adjacent battle costumes, only one other Josh Swain made the trip to Lincoln, Nebraska. He and the organizer fought each other in a round of rock-paper-scissors, and the organizer emerged victorious as the now one true Josh Swain. Although as his first act on the throne, he did decree that the other Josh Swain can keep his name. And as for the larger pool noodle Josh fight, videos posted from the event show a scene of low-key chaos with people just slapping each other willy-nilly with pool noodles. But after a little bit, it became obvious that many Joshes were being taken down by one pint-sized warrior. Four-year-old Josh Vinson Jr. was fast becoming the most valiant of all the Joshes, and after taking down the remaining combatants with his bright red pool noodle, the dubbed Little Josh was declared the winner, the ultimate Josh. The newly coronated victor, a Burger King crown falling over his face, was lifted above the heads of the crowd to chants of, Little Josh! Little Josh! His father, Josh Vinson Sr., told the Lincoln Star Journal that it was actually pretty fitting for his son to win because he had actually been treated for seizures at the age of two by the very children's hospital the Joshes were raising money for. And that fundraiser, by the way, is still live online and as of recording has raised over $12,000 for the children's hospital. Attendees of the Josh fight, which Swain thinks numbered close to 1,000, also donated between two and 300 pounds of food for the Lincoln Food Bank. To my knowledge, no one suffered any serious injuries, and despite folks being a bit lax on mask wearing and social distancing, it looks like the event was overall just pure, unadulterated fun. And the way it came together and actually happened reminds me a lot of, like, 2012-ish era internet, and when organizations like Improv Everywhere would organize flash mob-esque events, or strangers who met in online fandoms or other niche spaces would put together gatherings in parks that often resulted in far larger turnouts than anticipated. Some of those events are occasionally looked back on with judgment as cringeworthy in retrospect, but I think there was a lot of joy in them, and some merit still to be found, especially in a world where we're suddenly emerging from a year of relative isolation. You know, like, those events of the early aughts were often gatherings for people who lived their lives primarily online, as many of us have done for the past year. So I wouldn't be surprised if we actually do get a lot of early aughts, internet, in real life vibes in a more mainstream way this spring and summer. As the original Josh Swain wrote on the fundraising page and asking people to donate, he hoped to, quote, show the world how the internet can turn an exercise in absurdity into something beautiful, end quote. Despite CBS's irrevocable love for them, most people these days are completely annoyed by laugh tracks added to TV shows. 
It's safe to say they've fallen out of favor. And actually, most shows from the late 70s onwards that have what we sometimes refer to as a laugh track really had an actual live studio audience and were just sweetened in post with the canned laugh track audio first introduced in sitcoms in the 1950s. But the clapping and laughter of the live studio audience, though more genuine and helpful to performers, still feels disruptive to some, especially since we know that, live as it may be, it's still scripted and planned out, with audience members being told when and how to react. While laugh tracks and live studio audience reactions are hallmarks of American sitcoms, when it comes to the practice of telling crowd members how to respond in order to elicit the correct response from other viewers, for that, you can thank the French. In the 1830s, the Paris Opera House employed people to sit in the crowd, disguised as ordinary audience members, to applaud, tear up, give a standing ovation, and shout encore at the end, or otherwise react appropriately to the performance. These professional applauders were known as the clack, or clackers, and that's C-L-A-Q-U-E, not the clap. And they were led by a logistically gifted and very large-handed man named Auguste Levasseur. Quoting JSTOR Daily, In exchange for his work, Levasseur received a number of free tickets to every performance. Some he gave away in exchange for participation in the clack, and the rest he sold for a tidy profit. His clack filed in before the rest of the audience, taking up strategic positions throughout the opera hall. They fixed their eyes on Levasseur, who guided them through the performance like a second conductor, giving signals for when to clap, when to cheer, when to laugh, and when to weep. Indeed, there was a great deal of strategy behind the applause. Levasseur poured over the script before each performance, consulting with the director about which moments needed help from the clackers and which could stand on their own. End quote. And why did the Opera House and other theaters in Europe who followed suit think their audience needed so much help? I mean, I think there's a bit of snobbery that can go into a lot of artists feeling unappreciated when their work doesn't elicit the exact response they think it deserves, so that plays into it. But part of it was also the changing class dynamics in France at the time. The theater of the 1700s was a place for the aristocracy, where one was meant to be seen rather than to see. House lights would be kept on for the whole performance, royals and other aristocrats would sit in the box seats so others could admire them, and they'd often even arrive late, interrupting the show as the audience applauded them instead of the performers. They really could not care less about what was happening on stage. And this apparently was not why the clack began to be employed, however. No, what really precipitated that invention was the rise of the bourgeoisie. These newly wealthy but not noble people were going to the theater and actually trying to pay attention, but they hadn't been given enough exposure to arts and culture of this sort before, so the interpretation, at least, is that they were self-conscious about not knowing what they were supposed to like. Hence, the clack was meant to help them out. But it wasn't just that the Opera House didn't trust the relative hoi polloi to understand when to applaud or when to laugh. They got very strategic about it for other reasons. There was one instance of a singer who had a particularly long note to sing, and the clack knew exactly when to applaud and hush back down so the singer could take an imperceptible breath. The clack could also be used for evil, however. The Paris Opera House at one point, fed up with the perceived arrogance of a dancer and her mother, instructed the clack not to applaud at all for any of the dancer's solos one night, which meant that no one else did either. When she paused for applause, there was complete silence. 
So there you go. The forced responses of audiences didn't begin with sitcoms or even with radio, but rather with opera houses in the 19th century. If only they knew back then that you could indicate a joke is funny by having a character break the fourth wall and give a self-effacing shrug to the audience. Alright, so this past weekend didn't just see the Joshes, there were also the Oscars. And apart from having perhaps the weirdest and most anticlimactic ending in Academy Awards history, that was not the only record that was broken. Lots of records were broken, actually. Lots of firsts. Chloe Zhao became the first woman of color and only second woman ever to win Best Director. Mia Neal and Jamika Wilson became the first black women to win for Best Makeup and Hairstyling. Glenn Close is now sadly tied with Peter O'Toole for most acting nominations without a win. And Sir Anthony Hopkins, in his upset win, became the oldest ever winner of Best Actor at 83. But the record I was most interested in is not necessarily a good one. This was the first time, at least maybe in its televised history, that the Oscars stage featured a ramp to make it wheelchair accessible. As Liz Plank points out in an op-ed for MSNBC, despite winners in high heels and long gowns nearly tripping up the stairs every year, or in the case of Jennifer Lawrence actually falling flat on her face, the awards ceremony has never broken ties with their iconic stairs. Until this year, when Jim Lebrecht, co-director of the documentary Crip Camp, became the first ever nominated director with a visible disability. The documentary, which tells the story of a summer camp for teens with disabilities, many of whom went on to fight for the establishment of the Americans with Disabilities Act and ongoing disability rights issues, was my personal favorite to win Best Documentary. And it's on Netflix, so I highly recommend you watch it if you haven't already. But for all the good the movie has done generally, Lebrecht notes that they've seen the most interesting changes behind the scenes in Hollywood, as the movie's success has meant awards shows, parties, and other events have finally had to make their events accessible for the first time to accommodate the film's crew and subjects and legally follow the very regulations the documentary subjects helped to enact. It's a move that is long overdue and one that will hopefully change the previous inaccessibility of the awards show that Lebrecht describes as, quote, a tacit message to people with limited mobility that you don't belong here, end quote. And I do hope these changes stick. I remember at the Tonys in 2019, Ali Stoker won for Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Oklahoma and had to wait to hear the results backstage instead of with her cast and loved ones in the audience because the stage wasn't accessible. And then when the show won Best Musical, she had to stay in the audience and not join her fellow cast members and crew on stage. And you know, so many accessibility accommodations benefit everyone, so they really shouldn't be such a hard sell. As Plank notes, a ton of disruptive technologies, like facial recognition software, were first developed for people with disabilities. Even the football huddle was started by a deaf football player. But more than that, it's past time we removed these literal and inferred barriers of entry for talented folks that deserve just as much a shot as anyone else. Quoting MSNBC, as Lebrecht explained... It's not just about making sure nominated artists can get their awards with pride and dignity. It's also about sending a message to every person with a disability watching at home. It's not just about a physical ramp for the audience to the Oscars stage. It's about the symbolic one from aspiring disabled creators to the film industry. End quote. (laughs) 
That's all I got for you today. But as always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.